Hello and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 78. Today we're going to be talking about a really interesting survey of people's reactions to vision accessibility on the Apple platforms conducted by the website AppleViz. A lot of folks are familiar with AppleViz as a leading accessibility site focused on uh, visual uh, accessibility on the Apple platform, as the name implies. And I've got a couple members of the AppleViz team here to talk about the survey and sort of let folks know how people in the community are feeling about the various platforms that Apple provides. And so let me introduce my guests. Uh, first up is Scott Davert. Hey, Scott. Hey, Shelley. How's it, how's it going? It's great to be back. It's great to have you back, and it's it's going well. Thanks for thanks for joining us. And also with us is Dave Nason. Hello, Dave. Hey, Shelley. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate you both uh, taking the time because when I saw this survey was being conducted, I was really excited, and part of me was like, "Oh, why didn't why didn't this happen before?" Because there are other surveys out there, and um, my understanding is that one of the inspirations for for this survey was uh, Jason Snell's six colors report cards that he does every year. Are there any other reasons that that you guys decided to do this survey at this particular time? I think, well, part of it was we wanted to get it out before Global Accessibility Awareness Day um, to kind of give people um, an idea of where things were. And what we found over the years, I think, and Dave, you can feel free to chime in if you agree or don't. uh, But what we found over the years is that the best way to get Apple's attention is to, like, publicly let them know how things are going. And the site itself really tries to do that. You know, this is this is sort of a natural progression from, from where we've been over the last, what is it, 13 years almost now. Summer of 2010, uh, Apple has launched. But one of, the, uh, one of the reasons for it was to kind of give them a comprehensive view, if you will, of vision accessibility on their products and to give community members, we are definitely a community-driven website, um, to give them an equal or more equal voice in how they feel Apple is doing. And hopefully this will help Apple improve, and hopefully it also continues engagement with the community to help them make those improvements. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head as well, Shelley, when you said, when you said like it almost felt like, why hasn't this been around before? Because we've been, the website, as Scott said, has been around for 13 years, but, and there's lots of feedback coming in all the time through that and lots that Apple can, can dig through on the site, but to actually crystallize it in this format, um, hopefully once per year to kind of measure success and get that customer feedback in that way just seemed like a, like a really good idea. Tell people who don't know about AppleViz. You mentioned it's a community-driven website. There are forums. You guys do very extensive uh, lists of apps. You have blog posts when the new OSs come out. There are reviews that, not re- not necessarily reviews, but posts that tend to focus on new features and, and bugs. But but what, what is AppleViz's mission? What, do you, what are you guys about? I suppose it kicked off in 2010, Scott. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, first, as a way to find apps that were accessible because we all know that kind of feeling of getting your new iPhone, turning on voiceover, downloading an app that everybody's speaking about and getting excited about and then finding voiceover doesn't work so well. So I think that was really the the crux of how it got started and it developed over time into a forum where people help each other out and that's a huge part of it is the forum. 
people come ask questions, anyone from beginners to advanced users, helping each other out, and then into guides and podcasts, um, which has become a big part of what we do. And even, you know, the bug tracking during the beta cycles. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's got more and more extensive. I'm actually yeah. really impressed with the the bug tracking because I, you know, I get those betas myself and I I dig in, but you guys find amazing stuff really quickly. And I'm just wondering, is that because you have so many people that are pouring it over it over it so quickly or you're just really good at what you do? We just torture ourselves, Shelley. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tend to run the, the beta on my a daily driver, which everybody says, if you, uh, you know, don't do this, but like tend to do it because... That's how you're going to really find bugs. Is if you're if I, I find anyways that I'm running it on my daily machine. So, um, yeah, the summer is uh, always fun, isn't it, Scott? A lot of it is just going through the every every beta. I mean, I think I've run every beta since iOS five beta four or beta five, something like that. I skipped one beta in that cycle because their voiceover like wasn't working. <laughs> Um, so I skipped that beta, but pretty much every beta since iOS five and it's kind of, it's, it's, um, the whole reason Apple Viz was created really was to share information about things that they have learned about, like, uh, Dave said, you know, different apps, different functions of voiceover, different uses for Bluetooth keyboards, you know, all these different things that Apple isn't necessarily sharing with the community itself and on one hand it's it's a it's a blessing it's a lot of fun right i talk about this every year in my article i write um you know covering what's new in accessibility for blind and deafblind users you know it's sort of like being a detective you know you have to go through everything and investigate everything to figure out oh well that's changed or oh well that's a new you know that's a new feature that's a new function. Let's see how it works. And um, it's really a summer project every year from beta one to when the first release of that major iOS update happens that uh, a lot of the staff, we do the testing we can, we document things and, you know, really try our very best. We are a small team, very small team of volunteers, but we try our very best to promote what is accessible with Apple products and services, what isn't, or if it isn't accessible, or if there is a bug, is there a workaround? And I think in a lot of cases, promoting the workaround has helped a lot of people with some of the bugs that uh, they've encountered for many releases in some cases. I think the other thing that's really of huge value that, they, that we do each year, and it's Thomas who does it on the team, he puts together a very comprehensive series of podcasts on all the new kind of features and changes specifically for accessibility as well. And I think that helps an awful lot of people. I will say uh, when I was working through the betas myself, well, when, when the phones were released, I didn't have a pro phone and the Dynamic Island came out. And so when Thomas did a podcast on the Dynamic Island and voiceover, I was like, thank you. <laughs> Somebody did it. And I subsequently wrote an article about it when I got a 14 Pro Max later on. But you guys are always like right on top of this stuff. So I appreciate it as a user and as somebody who's trying to document this for my own work. 
So, well, let's talk about the survey. I, I mentioned it was sort of inspired by the Six Color Survey, which I'll also link to. That's a survey that Jason Snell does of basically pundits and developers and nerds like me. There are a few folks who cover the accessibility waterfront in that survey. Jason has been really... Uh, open about including our points of view. And uh, I think there were like 55 people who participated and everybody participated this year, everybody from the likes of John Gruber all the way to uh, schmucks like myself. Uh, And it's an interesting perspective on Apple from a sort of higher level, because as I say, it's journalists and it's pundits and it's developers. But what you guys did was you surveyed your members, your users. So the people who are registered AppleViz users could answer this survey that you did. And I guess I'm wondering, how, did the response, uh, not, not what people said, but the amount of response you got, did, did you get the kind of response that you wanted? Did you get a lot of folks uh, joining in on the survey this year? So we had more responses than I thought we would get. I was a little worried when we went to launch that people might not um, take part or that, you know, there there is a, an amount of negativity in the community, like any community, really. And I was a little afraid that things would not come out in a way that I would feel was accurate. However, I have to say I was pleasantly, very pleasantly surprised. What did you think, Dave? Yeah, I, I suppose I tried to gauge it by maybe the number of responses we get to our, our annual awards, the Golden Apples and our Hall of Fame awards and things like that. And would it be similar? But I think it actually outstripped those. I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but um, definitely there was. And I remember even that first morning say, saying to David, oh, wow, look how many responses we have in the first four hours. You know, So it kind of went out with a bit of a bang, I think, which was great. I saw it all over social media and I actually kind of meant to join in and then I was like, I, I got busy doing other things, but I was just as happy to read the results when they came out. It's quite a long uh, report card, which I encourage people to read. And what we're going to do today is go over the categories in the survey and sort of get some feedback from Scott and David. Scott actually participated in the survey, and you'll you'll see his uh, comments uh, sprinkled throughout, uh, as well as a lot of other users who are named and unnamed. Uh, but let's talk about the categories in the survey. Right. So, so there are five categories, voiceover, Braille, low vision, accessibility updates in 2022, and how do you feel about Apple's ability to uh, address bugs? And then within that, you have uh, opportunities for people to rate the features as well as their own user experience. And I guess I want to start there. Like, how, how did you decide to make that division within each category? So you have like, how do you feel about this feature itself? And then how do you feel about the user experience? Was it helpful to divide the category in that way? I think so. There was a little bit of debate, you know, within the team of how best to frame that. But I guess what we're trying to get at is the difference between, you know, they can have a great feature set, but because of things like bugs or because of deterioration in the experience sometimes, you know, people might have a different feeling about how it's actually working for them in their day-to-day lives. So we, we did feel it was important, yeah, to have that break and then, Having the voiceover, Braille and low vision breakdown, I think, was really important as well, because there are those different kind of segments within the community. Some cross all three, some cross two of them, and some only use one of those features. But it was really important to represent all three. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel like, and and I appreciate specifically you're including low vision, because I feel like that sometimes gets short shrift. And when voiceover and Braille are lumped together, that often doesn't get at the nuances of 
my experience as a Braille reader is really kind of separate, Braille user is really kind of separate from whatever experience I might be having with voiceover, even though I'm using voiceover in conjunction with Braille. So uh, that that part I, I found super helpful. And then what you did within each of these categories is you talk about each individual OS, and, and we don't have to get in that granular level of detail. But what I want to do is uh, with the aggregate ratings is point out to people sort of the range. So for example, let's let's start with voiceover. And you had people rate these features and their reactions on a scale of five. Uh, so the highest ranking uh, platform for voiceover users got a 4.5, which is iOS. Uh, then all the way down to the very bottom is tvOS at 3.5, very closely followed, uh, very closely uh, behind uh, macOS at 3.6. And then iPadOS and watchOS are a little higher up at 4.1 and 4.2. And so I guess I want to sort of talk about that differentiation between platforms in, in voiceover and, and how you guys felt that was reflected in the survey results. I really feel it's an accurate representation of where a lot of people feel like uh, Apple is right now on the various platforms. You know, um, I don't think you would talk to anybody who would say, for example, oh, voiceover on the Mac, they've really done a great job and it's really polished. On iOS, you know, it's much more polished. And that's kind of reflective, I guess, in their markets too, right? iOS is their biggest, followed by iPadOS and so on and so forth. So I think that um, really it's very accurate and very um, just a great representation of what the community feels and uh, of what I've seen and what I've experienced in uh, in all of these different realms, other than tvOS, which I haven't used in a while, and uh, macOS, which I gave up on. Yeah, um, I think it definitely reflects how people feel about just the amount of attention Apple gives, and I think that's probably true in the mainstream as well. Really, that iOS is their big one, and that's the one that gets the most attention. And then there seems to be a feeling in the community that. Mac um, in particular, and to an extent, even iPad gets a little bit neglected in terms of really pushing it and, um, you know, making those improvements that they could make. Yeah, it is interesting uh, because there's the perception just that Mac OS has kind of been, Mac OS voiceover specifically, but Mac OS in general is neglected relative to, say, iOS. And I guess I wonder if if you guys think that it's that, is that that Mac OS has just not been updated, or if it's just that the focus has been so much on iOS and making it better that Mac OS looks uh, less good by comparison. There was a quote, um, I don't remember who wrote it, but it's it's in the survey. Uh, One of the users said, voiceover feels like a 2010 application you know in in its present state and i think that really encapsulates a lot of how people utilizing voiceover and braille as well uh feel about the whole experience whereas ios has moved forward i mean it's far from perfect of course but you know there's a it's much more progressive uh movement forward with accessibility features on iOS than there is the Mac. I mean, they're still developing them, sure. But um, I would say I left Mac OS because of the Braille experience. Um, It's just so much more efficient on another platform. So, you know, that's what made me leave it. And I think that that has only continued in the last several years. 
Yeah, one of the other comments was similar, said something like, my greatest hope is that they would tear down voiceover and start again on the Mac, um, which, yeah, is a similar idea because it does feel a bit like you've got inconsistencies. So you're using this way of interaction with voiceover and you could be using an M2 Mac and still open up Safari and get a bug saying, or not a bug, but you get a Safari not responding, Safari not responding from your your screen reader is hanging in that way, which shouldn't be obviously happening. And that kind of thing really um, frustrating people, obviously. Even though voiceover on iOS is regarded pretty well with a 4.5, there are still a lot of people who have issues with it. And it feels like those issues are around bugs and there are even people who are and, and we're talking specifically about voiceover as opposed to Braille, which is like its whole separate thing in terms of issues and comparisons. But even when compared to Android, there are people who are feeling like TalkBack is more of a viable solution for them than it might have been in the past. And it, there doesn't seem to be as much frustration with voiceover for iOS as there is for Mac, but there there does seem to be some there. And I, in my sense, and tell me if you agree with this, is that some of the rating that voiceover for iOS gets is because the iPhone was such a transformative device for so many people and that even the limitations and the bugs that still exist – people are still so happy that this device exists that gives them as much independence that it does that they kind of give it a little benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm i right there with you. Um, and, you know, it's important to reflect on that. You know, it's, it's, it's important to remain remember, you know, where we came from in 2009 before voiceover existed. I mean, we had mobile speaks and we had talks. Sorry, I think it's mobile speak, not speaks. Yeah, speak. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had that. And for its time, it was great. But the iPhone was like the next natural step. And so many people just took the ball and ran with it and developed so many just amazing things, both inside Apple and third-party applications and stuff. So um, it does really... I think, contribute to many people's quality of life. Um, I, I marked in the latter comments, but I'll just go ahead and say it now. You know, these things are very revolutionary, but when people have them become their lifeline, uh, it comes with a sense of responsibility. Yeah, I think that Apple were the ones, a lot of people were credit being the first to kind of mainstream accessibility, where you could, you know, buy a machine and turn on accessibility features not have to purchase anything we've all you know people spent years buying things like jaws and zoom text and suddenly you have these built-in features that kind of put us on a level playing field and i think yeah they get a lot of credit for that well let's talk a little bit more about mac os because you, you mentioned safari is always a big issue <laughs> uh voiceover just not being as as quick as it should be, uh, just not behaving as you expect. And then something that the, the readers didn't talk about a lot, which I'm surprised, and it's not something to be to hold Apple responsible for necessarily, but there are a lot of Mac apps that just aren't voiceover compatible. I mean, a lot of important apps. And so I guess I, I wonder if, if that's something that contributes to, or what, what do you think are the major issues with Mac OS and voiceover? I think so, yeah. Like I've put, I can't remember if I put it in my own comments or not, but... It certainly fed into my sentiment that like you can't get things done on a Mac in quite the same way. So if I wanted to, I could at work ask for a Mac to do my job instead of a Windows machine, but it's not really an option for me because we're so, you know, Microsoft Office apps are so crucial to what we do. 
And whether it's an Apple's fault, Microsoft's fault, or that both of them in some way together, I just can't get things done in those apps on a Mac, you know, and it's it's hugely frustrating because there's other things I love about the Mac. Um, so I definitely think that feeds in. That really depends what you want to get done, if the Mac is going to work for you or not. If you want to do audio editing or something like that, if you want to browse the web, apart, aside, from, aside from the Safari hanging, um, it, you know, you might find it's okay. Um, and Mail is, is a great app, but um, yeah, people struggle to do certain tasks that they find easier to do on Windows, it seems. Yeah, and and there are certainly instances of this in other operating systems, but you know, there's just a lot of things on Windows that are more effective. You know, it's you can do the same task with less steps. You know, um, whether you're using NVDA or Jaws uh, or even Narrator to some extent, it's it's a much less complicated system. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but. Um, when what made me give up Mac OS as an operating system for myself was a couple of versions ago when you could no longer pan through content with a Braille display uh, and HTML, you know, HTML content on the web. And I was just like, no, I'm not having these problems <laughs> on Windows. And, um, and, you know, that was when, you know, the, the pro dongle era started. And I'm just like, <laughs> no. I'm not doing this, you know, so uh, that was my personal reason. Those were my personal reasons for moving away from the Mac. And I think I'm not alone there now. Um, and people who are sighted tell me this all the time. Oh, yeah, you go out to a coffee shop in Manhattan or whatever. All the sighted people have Macs. They love them, especially content creators. Um, but unfortunately, the voiceover experience in a lot of ways doesn't mirror that. I think as well, the whole... Uh, the different levels that you have, you know, where you interact interact with blocks. When I first started using a screen reader ten years ago on a Mac or twelve years ago now, um, it may I thought it actually made some logical sense because I was coming from being a sighted user. So I'd be interested to hear what you think of that, Shelley. That I had a, a, a visual concept of what a window was and what a toolbar was and what a sidebar was, um, and so that kind of made sense to me. But as I've gone over the years using it, I found this less and less actually efficient, you know, and whereas on Windows, you can just press, say, F6 to go from container to container if you need to. It's a flatter design and it feels a bit easier to get around. That's a really good way of expressing it because I'm a daily Mac user, but not a daily voiceover user. I am a daily voiceover user on iOS and I can move through it very well and very easily. And people have often asked me, why don't you write a book about Mac voiceover? And what I always tell people is it would take a lot of time for me to get up to speed. And I've wondered, why is that true? Why would, why would it, is it so much harder for me to wrap my brain around voiceover for the Mac? And I think that's a good explanation is that it's not intuitive. It creates its own interface structure that you have to be beholden to. And if you're using your vision using voiceover at the same time or instead of using your vision is a very different paradigm on the Mac. And it just is uncomfortable and it doesn't, it's not as efficient. Efficiency is, is, is a real, efficiency is a really good word to apply to what's kind of missing from voiceover on the Mac. And it's worth pointing out that as Mac OS and iOS become closer to one another, you might think that that would help Mac OS voiceover, but because Mac OS voiceover hasn't, I mean, this is all my opinions. This is not what the survey people said, but, you know, but, but it feels like 
that has, and tell me what you guys think of this, it doesn't feel like the sort of moving closer of those operating systems has really affected the way people interact with, with macOS voiceover because their voiceover, they have the same name, but they're really very different interfaces. Yeah. I think if anything, actually Tyler and our team made a point that in a sense, it's almost made it worse because now we have these, you can have an app kit app or you can have, you know, which is the traditional native apps. And then you've got mm-hmm. Catalina and then you've got these iOS apps or running on Mac on the M1 and M2s. And some of them have different ways of working. You know, literally you will click a button and it'll work in a different way depending on what type of app it is. And a user should never have to worry about, is this a Catalina app or a native app? <laughs> you know. Yeah, and it doesn't feel, you're not, as a blind user, you're not going back and forth between iOS and macOS in the same intuitive way that you would be visually if you're using those Catalyst apps or those uh, other apps that have been, you know, ported over to iOS or macOS fully. So, yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting point, and it does feel like Apple has a lot of work. And it, it also makes it harder to ping third-party developers in the Mac world. Like I talk, I bug iOS developers all the time about making some apps accessible, and I'll ask a Mac developer but for me, I feel like I have more difficulty making that case, either because there are fewer people using it or because it's I, I can't explain what I want f- from them because the operating system sort of imposes some limitations on what they could do in the first place. Yeah. And that's becoming an issue even on Windows as well, like where we're getting mm-hmm. Electron apps and things like that. So some of these more modern apps are, are causing more, more challenges for us, I think, on, on all platforms. Sure. Well, and the other well, let's thing. Let's talk. Go ahead. The other thing is that when you try to go the other direction, you know, it's not working out so well either. I mean, look at flat navigation versus uh, what is the new one called? Group navigation. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It it could be so much more well done on the iOS side. You know, uh, for example, the mail app. There's no, you can't reliably move in and move out of groups. Um, so we're over a year into this now, and I've had to show this at a at a training I did a while ago, where you know you can't reliably move among groups once you start interacting. Um, and so when they implemented this feature. I was like, oh, well, that's kind of nice. You know, you can start interacting with your messages group and all the toolbars and everything are out of the way. Great. Except it didn't quite work out that way. (laughs) And um, it hasn't really changed, I don't think, since it's been um, put into place. You know, they they introduced this feature and this is kind of a theme. They introduced this feature and it's great and it's wonderful and we're looking forward to it being refined in the future but it hasn't been. Well, let's talk about Braille. And I'm going to say a lot less in this conversation because I am not a daily Braille user, but I understand the issues of are of long standing. And so uh, I'll start by sort of quickly going over the ratings that your users uh, gave. iOS, a uh, lot, lot lower rating, 3.9 for iOS, 3.8 for iPadOS, 3.3 for macOS. WatchOS got a 4.3. I want to talk about that. And uh, TVS got a, TVOS got a 3.4. So uh, obviously, Braille is an issue on all of the platforms, but particularly on iOS, which two things I will say about that, just for, for an audience who might not have this perspective, uh, iOS 
in the mobile world has long led in Braille over, and that was one of the things that iOS always had over Android is Braille support. And the other thing I would say is that uh, there's a perception that because voiceover and iOS are so uh, inter, inter, interlinked and because there's support for so many Braille displays out there that iOS and Braille get along like a house on fire. And these survey results indicate that that's not necessarily the case. That's a great analogy. Um, it's it's really a combination of, I believe, and you know, these are speculations on my part. Um, I've you know, there are more opinions than anything, but the, the report card lines up with my opinions, I would say, in, um, overall. So you have a lot of things going on here. You have voiceover and a lot of bugs that voiceover users have also impact Braille display users, um, you know, in terms of navigation and uh, things like that. You know, whatever is not labeled with voiceover isn't going to be labeled for a Braille user. On top of that, you have things that happen in Braille that don't happen with speech, either because uh, they're Braille-specific messages or things that you would find, or um, because voiceover, when you get look at it from an audio perspective, there's just certain features that uh, it took forever to get equal Braille support in. And that's one of the challenges that a lot of people face is that it doesn't seem like, and I wrote this in my comments in the report card, it doesn't seem like anyone is really testing Braille without using speech. And uh, I mean, I can go through all the examples, but it's, you know, it's been a common issue ever since I've started beta testing and providing feedback on beta and public releases in 2011. Have the has the nature of the bugs changed over that time, or do they just continue to pile up? Um, they change. Things get fixed, but it takes a while. Uh, for example, um, you know, most most recently we have this bug where when you go into the notification center the Braille display connection drops. Now, that type of behavior differs a little bit on the device, depending on what one you're using. Some people aren't even having it, which makes it more difficult to track down bugs. You know, the more um, fragmented everything becomes and the more pieces you add to the puzzle, the more likely you are to have something go wrong. So it, I can understand, to a certain extent, Apple's frustration with this process, but that's exactly why... Um, and it was made in various ways by several people. The sentiment was communicated that they really need to get somebody who is, you know, internal, uh, working internally, who tests Braille without the use of speech. That way, uh, things like this notification center bug, which never happened to testers, it was the uh, the GM that no one got to test where this broke. And I would argue in the case of that particular bug, okay, as a, as a, let's say you're a voiceover user and you're just kind of spot checking. If you have hearing, uh, when the, when the connection between the phone and the braille display drops, that makes a noise, it goes, or something like that. I'm, I'm really not a good sound effects imitator, <laughs> but you know, that would have been so easy to spot had somebody checked. 
and the beta testers that are um, not able to to really do that, like like I'm not, you know, beta testers didn't get that particular release at all, uh, which a lot of people documented. And so we couldn't catch the bug, even if even if it had been there, uh, because we didn't have access to it. And I guess for Apple's part, I understand we're a small subset of a subset. And I understand why they wouldn't just stop the, the release. But if they're going to do that, they need to warn people. You know, uh, people depend on this connection with their Braille display and their iPhone for everything from contacting emergency services and, you know, keeping in touch with family members through various applications to ordering food and groceries. And when a major bug comes along and the user can't revert back easily or they can't work around it, they're really stuck. And we should point out here that Braille display users include both folks who are primarily using it because they are blind, but also people who are deafblind. So if you're blind and you have hearing, you have an option, which is kind of the crux of what Scott is saying about testing without speech, because if you have hearing, uh, it's it's natural for you to sort of take the cues that your hearing has provided you with voiceover and you know what's happening. But if you don't have hearing, obviously you're reliant completely on the Braille. One other question for for folks who aren't familiar with Braille displays, is it is it a matter of testing in Braille generally or does it matter about uh, compatibility with particular display technology? Because obviously there are a lot of displays out there and they change over time. Is that a big thing or are we are we just saying if if somebody if there was basic testing, if there was more testing, let's say, because I'm sure they do some, but if there was more testing that was focused specifically on Braille in general, that that would solve more problems. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it is, from my perspective anyway, and I, I've been in the field for, I guess, about 13, 14 years at this point. Um, it's really a situation where any more testing that can be done is going to be helpful. So that um, from, you know, an external tester's point of view, it's like, okay, well, um, you know, you you gave me the release. I have to prioritize testing it and get feedback to you um, within a set amount of time. And I have a zillion other things going on in my life, you know, like everybody. Um, and because no one is fast tracking this. Um, and I, I think I lay out uh, examples of that in my comments. If no one's fast tracking it, then it just gets out there and nobody knows about it until people upgrade and they have no way of even accessing the operating system to tell anybody that there's a problem, right. you know. And again, when you don't have any hearing and you don't have any vision, you can't just turn on speech. You know, you can't just get your news from watching television or turning on the radio. You're really, really stuck and like I said, it's awesome that we even have this stuff as options. It's fantastic. But again, it, it, it comes with a responsibility. Dave, are you a Braille user at all? I'm not. I, um, I have great intentions and I have a Braille display sitting in a drawer that rarely <laughs> sees the light of day that I haven't quite managed to learn. I have a Braille display I don't use often enough, I will confess. I use it when I'm working on my book and then I put it away and it gets dusty and I forget how to use it, which is my fault. Absolutely. 
Scott, what about Mac OS and Braille specifically? What did your survey respondents have to say about that platform? Kind of like the same stuff that they said about iOS, you know, that it's uh, there's a lot of bugs that plague the uh, the operating system. I would say um, a lot of them were a bit more severe. Uh, and like the example I gave, and I, it could still be true, where that you get into certain HTML pages and Braille will not pan forward, meaning you only see the first however many characters on that line that can fit on the display. You can't move forward on that same line and continue reading. So it's almost like reading a web page with part of it cut off, you know, like you'll see uh, a link. And if you have a 14 cell Braille display, meaning it fits 14 characters, you're not going to get a lot of those longer, more verbose links. Or Is there a way to get out of that? You can stop interacting with the HTML content. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. So do that. No, don't do that. Might as well. So, <laughs> so does does do the, the voiceover issues, the Braille issues on Mac, are they a function of the voiceover issues, do you think, or is it something else? That I don't know. Um, I I haven't been on Mac OS in a while other than to just, you know, test other Braille devices and stuff, but... Um, I don't know that that HTML content issue has been fixed because that's, again, what made me walk away from it other than, you know, trying to train uh, other individuals on it um, just because of that. You know, it's just really such a basic thing to be able to read a web page in 2023 that oh, yeah. I just it was 2020, I believe, when I made the switch. But I was like, this is just crazy, you know. Um, Windows does it so much better. I'm sorry, Apple. I, I have to say that. I don't want to skip over the other platforms, although I, I get the sense even from your, your panelists that the people who are trying to use tvOS and are frustrated with Braille are frustrated, but that it's not as many folks necessarily. And, and watchOS, similarly, it's not really a, a Braille platform particularly. But is there anything you want to say about those platforms or about iOS, iPadOS and Braille? Um, first of all, congratulations, Apple, for being the only one who cared enough to put in Braille support with, you know, tvOS and watchOS. Um, you know, I, I have to start there because, you know, the, com the competition isn't doing it. Um, there are some limitations with it, some of which come from, sorry, specifically with watchOS. I should specify that. Um, you know, there, there's issues there with battery drain, right? You can't, um, you can't just sit there and run your Braille display on your watch all day. It's it's not going to, uh, it's <laughs> no. not going to last. You know, um, so they had to limit the Braille displays that they even covered to those that support low energy Bluetooth. But it's still just, yeah, I just eat your battery for lunch. Um, and that's a challenge that is, I think, something people are giving leeway on. They realize, yeah, this is, you know, it's the watch. It's small. It doesn't have that big of a battery. But the point is, is they made the effort. And in some cases, it works better on watchOS than iOS. Um, although now with the latest betas, things are starting to improve, I'm very happy to say. Uh, but we can't, of course, go into details about that. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, I think... And the reason why those ratings are a bit higher is because the expectations of what you can do, I think, 
on those devices are a little lower, right? You don't expect right. your uh, Apple Watch to go make you coffee and then, um, you know, pull you to work and all that kind of stuff. Maybe one day, but we're not there yet. I'm planning to edit this podcast on my Apple Watch, Scott. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, let's talk about one of my favorite uh, topics, low vision. Um, I was surprised at just how low these ratings were. And I have issues with low vision stuff, which I use every single day, but let me sort of run through them. iOS was at 3.9. This is low vision features. And I'm kind of concatenating this conversation so that we don't necessarily have to jump into the user experience segment, but I'm, I'm, I thought we'd just sort of go through the feature ratings. iOS uh, 3.9, iPad OS 3.5, Mac OS 3.5, Watch OS 3.0 and tvOS 3.0. So there is a lot of uh, concern about low vision, it looks like to me. And Dave, I want to ask first, did you get much participation or was it sort of weighted more toward voiceover and Braille users in the survey? I think it was weighted towards more towards voiceover and Braille. Um, there certainly were a number of responses on the low vision side, but not as many. And I think that possibly played into it, especially those two 3.0s that you mentioned at the end there. I suspect part of that story is the lower participation rate. Um, but there were interesting comments around it, around things like on the Mac, people sort of saying Zoom is great, but they've sort of seen Microsoft push things forward a little bit on the Windows side that Apple may be useful and behind a bit. I don't know if you'd agree or not. Um, and with Zoom text no longer on Mac as well, you've less, I guess, choice. Um, and on, it's interesting that iPad was lower than iOS, but you've essentially the same feature set. So we wondered, is that a just different people participating or is that uh, a difference in expectations? Yeah. And I, before I, cause I have, I have feelings, I have thoughts, so I'm good because it's my show. I get to share them. Mm -hmm. But I, I, before I do that, I want to, the thing that intrigued me the most was how many people really hate the iOS zoom gestures. People really want them to change. And I don't know if that's a comparison to Android, who I don't really like Android gestures much at all myself. I don't know what they would want them to change to. But then again, to be fair, I've been using this since the 3GS, so I'm sort of used to those gestures. But do you have a sense as to what really irks people about activating Zoom on iOS? I think some of it was um, around people who want to have Zoom there, but also have voiceover. And theoretically, they're supposed to play nice together. Mm. But in practice, they don't always play nice together. That's one reading I got from it. Um, and maybe on the phone, maybe the three finger, just be on a small screen, maybe being a little bit um, awkward. Yeah, and then I think there also are people who are understandably concerned that they don't, they don't feel like some apps and some interfaces give them large enough text. And some of that is an issue of dynamic type support in apps. And I think there are even places within the Apple uh, apps where people would like to see more flexibility and dynamic type. I think I think this is where people talked about widget. No, it was voiceover that they talked about uh, lock screen widgets. But I wanted to talk about it in on, on in this section because those elements don't support dynamic type at all. So you have those teeny tiny little lock screen widgets, but you can't make them bigger. If you did make them bigger, they would have the problem of, you know, zooming off the screen, I suppose. But it is interesting. You create a new interface that's designed for a very specific space. Yeah. And sometimes it's really hard to make that fully accessible for low vision purposes. I even see this in my day job when we're talking to, to teams. Of, and the, when we're asking them, OK, can you, can you bring a magnification or can you support this app with um, dynamic type and that kind of thing? And it's like it's a whole new design challenge. They have to rethink how that UI looks 
when you have it enlarged. So it, it's it's a big challenge, but uh, I'd like to think Apple are up to it. <laughs> Yeah, you, you'd hope so. And then there, there are also issues of contrast. And I some of the comments were a little hard for me to parse because I wasn't sure exactly where they were referring to it. But there are definitely places in iOS where you would expect, a if you're in dark mode or if you're using invert colors, you would expect a background to be dark and it comes up light. Like my favorite example is when you uh, open up your AirPods case and the little uh, pop-up to show you the battery strength uh, is is white if you're in dark mode or if you're in invert colors and you're just like, that's not good. Uh, and I think there's some issues with contrast on websites, which again is less an issue with Apple than it is with the site developers. However, uh, dark mode inconsistency. Dark mode is not an accessibility feature, but a lot of people, including me, want to use it as one. And so there, there is an issue as to like how you support how how rigorously you support dark mode, right? And mm-hmm. is it going to be available? Do I, as somebody who relies on it as an accessibility feature, have the right to expect that it's going to be invoked everywhere, as opposed to somebody who's using it because it's easier for them to read that way at night? Yeah, I guess it depends how you define accessibility as well. It's in the mm-hmm. sense of you know the broader sense, it is an accessibility feature. It's making it easier for some people to to read, but you've also got invert, as you said, and smart invert, which I would think is supposed to address the issue that you talked about, but maybe isn't successfully doing so. Well, I mean, and that's a whole other thing because you had, you first you had invert colors, classic, what is now called classic invert. And then they came up with smart invert because classic invert did not invert, it inverted too many things. So you had images that Mm. were negatives and smart invert was supposed to solve that, but that relied on the app developer to support that level of smart invert. So then they came up with dark mode because smart invert was not a feature in its, con- in its current context that somebody without a disability was likely to use. Mm-hmm. And dark mode, people without disabilities were like, oh, this is great. I love this. And they know that they can turn it off and on instantly with Control Center. Of course, you can do it with Accessibility Shortcut for Smart Invert, too. Uh, but, you know, people like me find themselves using dark mode by default and then Smart Invert when dark mode doesn't work. And then there's per app settings, which is a nice thing that has been added. And I guess the thing I didn't notice in the discussion of low vision are the features that are relatively new, like per app settings. And they're, they're, they're sort of, Apple has almost created workarounds within its low vision interface to sort of account for the problems that were there before. And I feel like per app settings is one. And that feature, for folks who don't know, is one where if you have an app that doesn't support dark mode or smart over colors or whatever it is, it's usually dark mode, uh, you can go in on a per app basis and say, turn on smart invert colors for this app that doesn't support dark mode. And then whenever you open that app, then you won't be blinded by a bright white screen. You will actually see the dark screen that you want. And to me, that's great, but it's also a workaround. It's like we're accounting for the failures of our developers. <laughs> you know, and there was somebody who made that comment in one of the voiceover sections where it was like, well, yeah, the bugs are pretty bad, but since I've been on iOS for many years, I can work around it, you know, and I think that's some of what you're seeing where people are not so dissatisfied with it if they know those workarounds, but it's like me with the Braille display, okay, there's um, with the NLSE reader and the uh, the Brilliant and several of those devices, some of the commands aren't working, like select all doesn't work, and copy, paste, cut, all those sorts of things. But you can still go into the voiceover rotor and select those items. So 
uh, it's a workaround, but if you don't know it's there and it's not something you're familiar with, then it's more of an issue because you don't know about the workaround. And even if you do, if you learn about it later, you have to learn now to use a new feature you're not familiar with. So, um, you know, it's sometimes really a catch-22, not only with low vision, I'm sure, but all of this stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. if you know it, you know it. If you don't, well, you might be in a world of hurt. Well, that sort of gets to a discussion I was going to have later, but we might as well do it now because I, I, I sense in this survey and I also sense, to be honest, when I'm talking to people who use this stuff, who have disabilities, that there's a such a huge difference between people who are experts and people who are just learning this technology or whose relationship with technology is not as deep as ours might be, shall we say. And the level of frustration when things don't work is so palpable for those users whose relationship with technology is just like, I want to get my stuff done. I want it to work. I've been trained. I've been given this phone or I've been given this Mac and I've been trained by a rehab agency or some other entity and I just want it to work and it's not working the way it should. And that level of frustration is really high. And I think a lot of those people just don't feel heard. And they, and you know, even they, and we try as, as quote unquote experts or nerds or whatever you want to say, you know, we try our best to like advocate for those folks and also to explain to them what we know that might help them. But I just get a sense in the comments and in the, the, the things I hear from people, that there's just this level of frustration that they, they just don't feel heard. Yeah, I uh, I would agree with that. And also, not only that, but it it leads into the, another interesting discussion, which is usability first versus accessibility and how those two interact and how they relate to one another. I'll give you a quick example. So at work, we use ADP. Yuck. Um, <laughs> so I have to use the time card function. And in JAWS... Uh, thanks to the uh, the folks at Audio Eye, uh, the only way you can get into the calendar at a certain point to select your days and your hours is by using Tab. Not necessarily Shift Tab; that might take you out of that carousel. <laughs> but can you imagine logging two weeks worth of time? Um, it almost takes you two weeks to do it (laughs) by essentially having to count the number of tabs between where you insert the, uh, the proper data. And it's really an issue with, uh, you know, being a braille user. It's technically accessible as long as you don't mind counting seven tabs in between each, each field that you want to insert your data into. But is that practical? No. It should not take an employee 20 to 30 minutes to simply fill out their time card. But it's technically accessible. I mean, it does work. You can use your tab key. Just don't try using your arrow keys and don't try doing shift tab because then you don't know where you'll end up. Um, And, you know, that's a whole nother discussion. But I think it's just as much worth having is, okay, this is technically accessible, but is it usable? And then you get into the discussion of, well, it's usable if you know how um, and you know how to use the functions right. But in order to know how to use the functions right, you have to have resources and tutorials available that people can take advantage of. 
because not everybody wants to go out and pay somebody to help them learn the device, right? You know, you have all these free resources available to you, and that's great. But um, from Apple's uh, specific um, resources, they're severely lacking, especially in the Braille department, but I'm assuming in other ways as well. And so that's some of the challenge. I mentioned this in the beginning. It's a cursing and a blessing at the same time. I have to hunt through the operating system to discover new features. Apple highlights some of them, but not all of them. Um, and that's, I think, another area where they're lacking. People aren't aware of all of the features an operating system has. And there's no quick and easy way uh, to to get up to speed on those things because the things that were developed, they're informative, but they're not complete and they're not always accurate either. And there, we had a good discussion about this the other day, Scott, about how they could do more to onboard people with, you know, there's no tutorial there or even when you get an operating system update, there's no splash screen like you might get in an app or anything like that to say, hey, here's what's new in voiceover. So as we said earlier, we you know, the sub, we got into the summer, we're digging through the OS looking for what's new rather than having some help to, to, to get that information. Yeah, yeah it's funny absolutely. because uh, when you start voiceover and you're installing a new iPhone, you get one screen of, I think there's like three, three or four voiceover gestures that are listed there. But that's not necessarily the set of gestures that's going to help you because the next thing you have to do is get on a keyboard and type. You have to type your password. You have to type your Wi-Fi password. And one of the things I did when I started thinking about how to structure the voiceover chapter in the book I write is put those voiceover gestures ahead of where I start telling you how to set up your phone because you've never seen those voiceover gestures before. You've been handed a phone. You've been told you can set it up independently. But if you don't know how to type, if you don't know how to do uh, standard typing versus direct touch typing because you're brand new to it, how are you going to get that password entered and how are you going to get that phone installed? And that's just at the real basic level. And when you go even you know further in, and there are whole other sets of issues. Even I remember oh, yeah. back to when I got my first iPhone, and I, I think I was using that thing for about a year before I even found out that touch typing was a thing. That direct right. touch didn't exist then, but you had standard and touch. And somebody told me after about a year, yeah, you don't have to double tap every letter, you know. And it's like, because Apple never told me that there was another typing method. Right, right. Well, uh, that's that's why I get to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, and that's why, and and I'll just the the, the real the point I was going to make, rather than just self-aggrandizing, the point I was going to make about that is, uh, what limited documentation exists is in the back of an Apple manual. And back in the day, one of the reasons I started writing my book is that people would write, and and uh, not blaming anyone, that's just the way they did. It. Here's what's new in accessibility. Some Apple Viz did it. There are other book writers out there who did that. And I was like, well, that's not going to help somebody who's brand new. And so what's happened is my book has ballooned to like 225,000 words because I'm like, I'm going to tell you every – and I'm going to miss things. I'm not going to get everything, especially – you ask me the details of switch control, at some point I'm going to look like an idiot because I'm not going to know as much as I should. But the the, the I think it surprises folks who are not familiar with accessibility just how much – stuff is actually in there, which sounds good when you explain it that way. You say, look at all the things that Apple has provided in terms of accessibility. But a lot of what I'm doing is actually explaining how it works, how this really simple thing is supposed to work <laughs> if you don't know how to use it. Right. Yeah. And and that's we had this discussion on the other podcast, which is 
Other operating systems have some pretty nice tutorials. I recently set up a new Pixel 7. I haven't touched Android in a long time. That was okay, though. I learned pretty much what I needed to know. I was pleased, by how the way, do, that I never... How do they do that? Are, is it like tool tips or something more than that? Or is it an actual manual that you're reading? Or how do they get you into it? As soon as you turn on the phone, isn't it? You uh, Sorry, you turn on the phone and as soon as you... You have to know that gesture to turn on TalkBack, but once you you turn it on, right. it'll put you straight into a tutorial. So I set up a Samsung recently and had the same experience. And you can choose to skip it if you say, hey, I already have I've been using this. I know how to use it. You can hit skip, but it'll take a true tutorial. And Apple do it themselves the first time you set up VoiceOver on a Mac, but they haven't brought it to uh, iOS. Well, and they do it on the Mac as a sort of a screen by screen by screen tutorial, mm. I actually find that hard to work through because I never remember once I'm done. I kind of want a cheat sheet to take with me once I'm done uh, because it's like, okay, do this. Here's practice. You're going to practice it. And then you're going to do another thing and you're going to practice it. And at the end, you're like, wait, all I remember is command shift five. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good place to start. <laughs> yes, I think so. Sorry, I'm getting over a cold. The thing about the Android tutorial is it's very interactive. It's very, you know, helpful, I would say. You know, and of course you're not going to remember everything, but even if you remember half of it, um, and you're going to have people that, that will need it really, really, really slowed down. I mean, there's just, you know, some people are natural learners uh, with one-on-one, you know, interaction versus sitting in front of the phone or the computer or whatever it is and learning that way. It's just different for everybody. But that tutorial really does a good job of walking you through all the different, um, the the Android one, does a really great job of walking you through the gestures and what they are and what they do. And it does a great job, too, of when you get a Chromebook, you know, this is Chrome OS, obviously, now, uh, does a great job of describing each of where the keys are and what they mean and what you'll use them for, which is also really helpful. So before Apple had this situation where they were pretty far ahead of Android in terms of what their development was and, you know, the things you were able to do with Braille, with speech, um, even low vision. But what's, I think, happening is we mentioned the people who are extremely frustrated earlier and, you know, uh, to the point where some of them are just silent and walk away. Well... Now it seems like more and more Google is paying attention to that. You know, they're doing things like usability studies uh, where they're compensating people for their time. They're doing things where they go to conventions and talk to the people. Will it all materialize into something? It seems like it's starting to. Uh, But, you know, data is Google's business. They want as much data as they can get, even if it means that data says your product isn't working the way we want it to. So uh, we're kind of at a crossroads that I think we really need to just see how the next year or so plays out where which one will be better for me. And, and, And my hope is that as a Braille user, as a low vision user, as a speech user, you'll have an equal choice. You know, everything has its good and bad points and technology uh, certainly is not without that as a, as a thing, you know, uh, whatever you're going to use, whether it's a MacBook or a Chromebook or a Windows machine, you have uh, mostly choices. And 
the the good news is is that in most cases, as long as you're not a Braille user, uh, you can just go in and you know yeah hit Command F five, bring up VoiceOver, hit Control Alt Z, bring up TalkBack. Uh, so you know it's I think in a transition now where Apple's trying to figure out how they want to move forward, and and Google is doing the same thing. They're trying to figure out, okay, we have these users and they're providing this feedback. Now, what are we going to do with it? And I think what each of those companies chooses to do with that feedback, uh, no action is an action, by the way. Uh, Whichever they choose, it's really going to impact the landscape of accessibility dramatically over the next couple of years. I wonder if there a perception as well based on, you know, Apple historically is is seen as a kind of quite a secretive company and that kind of thing. They don't, they don't talk that much. So there's a sense maybe that they're not listening. I, I'd be very surprised if they don't have huge teams of people doing customer feedback um, and, you know, who are listening, but you don't necessarily see where that's going and how it's going. So maybe the perception is as well based on that. I think that's true. And because I've had opportunities to talk to Apple folks. I know people who work or have worked there. And so I know there's more going on than a lot of people are aware of. But Apple's culture overall, I think, prevents that from being known. And so again, users are frustrated because they feel like they're talking to a wall, even though I've heard people have good interactions with accessibilityapple.com, but not the interactions that they might wish, and certainly not the public user studies and things like that that Google does, or the uh, advanced notice Microsoft gives people of what's coming next. You know, that roadmap stuff is really valuable for people. And then there are high visibility people at Microsoft, for example, that are part of our community that everybody knows. And so I think I think Apple's accessibility functions specifically really suffer from that from that secretive nature. And I don't blame the individual folks that, that I've talked to or worked with in accessibility. I think they're all wanting to do the right thing, but they are within a company culture that sort of prescribes how they can interact with the community. So really quickly uh, on low vision, we talked a little bit about the rating for iPad OS being lower than for iOS in uh, in low vision terms, which I think is super interesting given that the iPad is a physically large device, potentially one whose large screen might be uh, preferable for somebody who's low vision. And with only one or two exceptions that I can think of, uh, the experience of using the iPad as a low vision user, just in terms of like looking at what's on the screen, it can be very relaxing when you compare it to a small phone-sized device. I'm I'm wondering if Dave, if you have a, what, what did you learn from what users had to say about iPad OS and the low vision? Remember, you got a 3.5. Yeah, it's interesting because I know I I've kind of got uh, very limited low vision, you might say. So I'm fully reliant on VoiceOver to use my devices, but I would kind of watch TV on the iPad sometimes, and you know, holding it because I can hold a bigger screen up to my face, kind of thing. Um. And for me, like on the voiceover side, it was all about kind of keyboards. And that was probably the main difference between iOS and iPadOS. But on the low vision side, I'm struggling to parse what the difference was or why people gave them different, you know, why we came out with different results from the iPhone versus the iPad. Yeah. I mean, stage manager is a mess, but that's brand new. And that's the only thing as a low vision person that I find 
irritating on an iPad, but I don't have to use it. And so I don't. And the iPad as a physical device is more flexible because I can put it, I have an iPad sitting right next to me on a stand. I'm looking at my notes. It is at the exact eye level that I want. I have a keyboard if I want it. Uh, the operating system doesn't impose any particular issues. So I'm not saying po- folks are wrong. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. I'm puzzled. Are there, so. are there obvious, is there low-hanging fruit on the low vision features set that they haven't done on iPad, I wonder? I don't, see, I don't think so. And like, I actually find it, I, I can't explain why. I have to actually interrogate this. But I find my experience, I've talked about switching back and forth between dark mode and smart invert colors and things like that. I find I have to do less of that on the iPad, probably because I'm not using Zoom at all because it's such a big screen. And even with dynamic type, if I have an app that's pinched to Zoom, I can just make it bigger that way. Or if it doesn't support dynamic type or have pinched to Zoom, I've just got more screen real estate. I have 12.9. It's funny because when the iPad... 12.9-inch iPad Pro first came out, a lot of folks in the mainstream who are sort of like power users loved it. And now they think it's too big. Mm. And I'm in love with mine. I have a 2018. I use it as a teleprompter in my day job. I use it here for the podcast for notes. And I did not think I would want a, a device that large because I, I write about a lot, you know, pick the size that makes sense for you based on your low vision. And I'm somebody who thinks a 27-inch screen on a computer is too big. But I, you know, it's the right size, right? And I think I think the iPad Pro 12.9 inch is a brilliant device and can in a lot of ways substitute for a computer aside from the operating system limitations that have nothing to do with accessibility. Like I would rather use Mac OS than iOS just as an operating system. Thank you very much. Uh, but in any case, I don't know. I, it, I just wonder if it's sample size to be yeah, honest. Yeah, it could be. And a low vision is such a spectrum. It's quite hard to nail down as well. Yes, isn't it? very much so. What about Mac OS? What did people say about low vision and Mac OS? Um, I think it was that kind Where's of Zoom consistency text? point. Yeah, no, well, Zoom text has been gone, so it's all on Apple. Yeah, Zoom text has been gone. So Apple have a responsibility. Which is not Apple's fault, clearly, but. <laughs> yeah. Zoom text, for folks who don't know, was a third party Zoom application. Apple did have Zoom capability on the Mac with Mac OS, but Zoom text enhanced that. It is a port of a Windows based Zoom application that did a lot of cool stuff with Zoom. And so if you're if magnification is what you need on your screen, Zoom Text, which was a couple hundred bucks and who's no longer, which is no longer available, uh, was a big help. And so now you're relying on a fairly limited set of Zoom features. And, uh, you know, again, the dark mode, smart invert colors dichotomy is an issue. And uh, in terms of like, well, which one do you use and uh, which which combination of those features is going to be an issue for you? Now there's this weird thing in Mac OS where if you use the keyboard shortcut to switch in and out of smart invert colors, there's this weird screen that says accessibility features on, accessibility features off. It's like, why? Why is there? It's not a whole screen. It's a pop up in the middle of the screen. I don't understand it. And I hate it with a fiery passion so that when I have to switch Zoom uh, on or off, or not Zoom. When I have to switch invert colors on or off, I have to look away from my screen. Uh, <laughs> but I don't. Nobody mentioned that one. It's <laughs> funny. We had like a mix of comments. I noticed. So you know, you had one person saying um, it's really intuitive and easy to use Zoom. It's fantastic. And, and then someone else saying it's very, it's good but quite limited. And then I look at the Windows side and I just see so many more options. 
Yeah, and 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 the thing that Windows has that Mac doesn't come close to is theming, and they've always had this. And this isn't specifically an accessibility feature, but a lot of people use high contrast themes for accessibility, and it's only gotten better with Windows. And you can you know transfer that from one Windows machine to another if you've got a if you like a high contrast theme, just go into your uh, go into Windows settings and set that thing up right away, and you're probably going to have most of what you want. And Mac OS just has fewer options for. For theming, uh, contrast and 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 zoom as well, because the high contrast there are, there are zoomed versions, uh, zoom capabilities in uh, the theming of, of Windows as well. So it's just yeah, it's more full featured. Yeah, I think that's the key. So um, let's talk about the uh, next category, which is the accessibility features that were added in 2022. And what fascinated me about this, this was a year when uh, the, the big sort of vision-related ones were the addition of voices, including the Eloquence voices, which anybody who's used other platforms was uh, quite familiar with and in some cases were quite excited about. And then there was the door detection feature, which if you have a pro phone that has LiDAR, allows you to find out whether there is a door nearby and some some indication of uh, details about that door. Those are really the only two features that folks seem to mention in iOS. Yeah, they were the big ones. And um, it, it's funny because even when Eloquence was released, there was like somehow there was debate on it. Like I personally can't stand it, but Scott loves it. So like I would never want to begrudge <laughs> Scott of his Eloquence. Do you know what I mean? Um, but some people kind of felt, expressed kind of feelings that oh, Eloquence is, a, is an old TTS, we don't need it anymore. I'd rather you spend your time and your resources on, you know, improving the voices we have now or bringing out new voices. So that's where there was some kind of debate, I think, around new features. And the door detection, I don't know if it's because it's only on the light with the LiDAR for the pro phones or what, but I have not heard a huge amount about it since it was released. I don't know about you guys. I haven't either, and I've only had a pro phone for a little while, and so I've only played with it a little bit. I th there were a couple comments in there that it seemed not to be accurate, and my perception of it is that it's a lag. So you pointed at something that you perceive to be a door that where you think a door might be, and it seems like it takes a while, and it especially takes a while to characterize it. So if you want to know whether it's an open door, or whether it has a handle or a knob, or whether there's a sign on it really takes too long. And I found myself, yeah. again, it goes back to testing with or without speech, right? I found myself looking through my phone mm. and seeing whether what was being read to me comported with what I was actually seeing with my eyes. And I would say that if somebody doesn't have that luxury or if somebody is a tester, they shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Uh, but it does seem to be really laggy, even on those super fast phones. You know, the other thing that I think a lot of people may not understand is and or may not think about it in this context okay when you're traveling in a vehicle right you're going 60 miles an hour or whatever you're doing um you know it's it's a lot different than walking down the street looking for a specific door or walking down a corridor in a hotel looking for a specific room number you know you really have to move slow Yes, and and it creates a lot of challenges, specifically um, not only for having to hold your phone out there, but and you probably already know where I'm going with this. Uh, as a Braille display user, uh, if I have a cane and I have my phone and I have my Braille display, I need at least one more hand, <laughs> you know. Um, and I, what I've really perceived, and this is certainly my perception 
is that they're laying the groundwork for something to do with glasses or maybe the AR headset. I don't know how they'll implement it exactly. But once this stuff gets on more head-worn devices, I think you're really going to start seeing it take off a lot quicker. You know, to me, it, this feels like a proof of concept, sort of like sound recognition. You've been listening to my podcast, Scott? I mean, because I've been saying that since people detection came out. <laughs> Great minds think alike. You know, I'm sure I have heard you. Because <laughs> a lot of people are saying that. Earlier was exactly yeah. when we both tried to speak at the same time. Was I was going to make that exact same point? So, yeah, and I think Apple. I think to its credit, because look, Apple has this headset thing, whatever it is, coming out, and people, if they care about it, are anxious about its accessibility implications, whether the device itself will be accessible and how accessible. And I have opined about that too. But when the, even before those rumors got really hot and that we thought, okay, well, this is the year they're going to announce it. When people detection and then door detection came out for LIDAR, the first thing I said is this is something that is not only laying the groundwork for how accessibility could come to some sort of device beyond a phone, but it's also a weird sort of dog whistle for the community saying, relax, we got you. When this thing comes out, when this headset comes out, there are going to be accessibility features or there are going to be features in it that are going to be valuable to you for accessibility. And there's a difference. I always talk about how there are features that are designed to make your device more accessible. And then there are other features that are designed to actually make your device more useful to you as somebody who uses accessibility. So in other words, like if I have if I have detection, if I have LIDAR out there guiding me in some way, that's not really an accessibility feature. That's just a specific enhancement to my life that is uh, it's very specific to, to my needs as a person with a disability, right? And so I've always looked kindly upon it. And the other comment I've made is I want to see the LIDAR come to the lower end phones. Mm -hmm. And that's the unfortunate thing is that it's always been a function of the high end cameras. And so it hasn't come to lower end phones. Yeah. And so I, you know, I didn't have access to it for a while. I'm just saying I've never got to use it. So. And who knows, you know, in terms of technical limitations, what are they actually up against? You know, uh, is this a premium feature that, that they are keeping out of the phones, the lower end phones on purpose? Or is it simply that, say, an iPhone SE 3 can't handle LiDAR? I, I really don't know. I don't either. I don't either. Yeah, because there has to have, obviously, machine learning behind it in order to interpret what the LiDAR comes up with. We should yeah. say that in, in this section, you didn't rate out the accessibility features by platform because some of them are cross-platform, but it was 3.5 for the accessibility features introduced in 2022, and then... Um, Apple's performance in 2022 in, oh, okay, I'm well, looking at this. Oh, I see, you do an aggregate down here. Yeah, I I think we, we had a, an interesting area, sorry. Um, I think an interesting area around that rating of 3.5 for new features as well is, it's quite a, it's a mature operating system now, you know, so 10 years ago, they were coming up with new things, you know, all the time. And it's, that, again, it's that, is there an expectations gap there or or what it is? Because how much can we actually expect them to add year on year is um, debatable. Yeah, and right. And I think, yeah, you ask a question, hey, how did they do last year? And people's responses are either going to be, oh, they did fine, or I didn't get a pony, so they clearly didn't mm -hmm. do a good job. 
Uh, and I, which is why, like, when I responded to Jason Snell's overall report card, I talked about accessibility. I said they had a fine year. They had a good year. They didn't. I mean, and I wasn't addressing things like bugs. I was addressing things specifically like new features. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, they added a couple of things that are kind of cool. They offered, offered some things that are non-visual disability related that I talked about. But they didn't, you know, reinvent the wheel or anything. Uh, neither did they stumble. And again, leaving aside bugs, I didn't, I didn't get the perception, and you guys tell me, that the bugs got worse this year. There were still bugs and there's still some egregious bugs. But I didn't get the sense that 2022 and the OS updates that we got last year were particularly great or bad from a bug point of view. I'd agree with that. I would disagree. I, well, I, th oh, okay. I, think, uh, I think there's one thing I would jump in on, which would be new features. That the, thing, the big thing that concerned me more than anything was we got the new lock screen widgets. And from 16.0 through to about 16.2, they were a disaster with voiceover. And that would concern me that a new feature could come along and not have really solid voiceover support built in. Um, I think that's maybe where the bugs part would have concerned me this year. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this mostly from a Braille perspective. Okay. Um, we've had text input issues in the past. We've had things that can be worked around but two times in the last year uh i can't remember if the first time was during 2022 it was during the ios 15 release cycle i think it was early 2022 anyway um two times within two operating systems we've had updates that have caused braille displays to stop connecting for various reasons there was the notification center slash flash message bug that when certain i don't fully understand this and what triggered it but when certain notifications would come in when flash messages would would come up it would cause the braille display to unpair now we have the notification center bug which yes is i guess technically 2023 but it's still you know it's the six ios 16 operating cycle. system yes and um, again, connections are dropping. You know, you, you go to your notification center and the Braille display connection for a lot of devices, not all of them, it just drops. It'll come back if you hit your touch screen and start, you know, flicking around the screen. And how quickly it'll come back will depend on the device, but sometimes it's 30 seconds. Think about that. Like, anytime you want to look at your notifications as a voiceover or a low vision user, if speech quit or if you got the blue screen of death for 30 seconds before you finally were able to get to what you need to major productivity killers and so i would say from a braille perspective in some ways they've moved backwards fair enough fair enough well let me uh in the interest of time, uh, let me ask you each to sort of give any final thoughts you have about either what you learned from this survey or what you would want Apple to take away from it. Just just you know, riff on, on what, do you, what do you think this survey does to inform the community? Yeah, I think um, I'm certainly happy. I think it was, it was definitely valuable to, to do this survey and to get those opinions from the community. Um, for me, the, the kind of the big takeaways are they're doing a great job in many ways on features and the fact that they are still looking to innovate, even if some years, you know, they're not mind blowing 
uh, for every individual, but they are still looking for ways to improve the feature set. But where they're lagging a bit is on that experience side, is on that testing side and on going back and fixing things when they're not working and go, and making sure that, you know, our experience remains solid. And that's kind of the big takeaway from for me is they are doing great in many ways, but that's the area where they could improve. For me, um, there's a few takeaways. Some of them are things I've already concluded, but it's always fun to, to take something that is sort of uh, something you think you already know and get confirmation of it. You know, it's like doing research in science. You know, replication is always important. Uh, I think the big conclusions for me are, one, humans are designing the technology. They're not perfect. And so you'll have bugs. Humans are designing it. They're not perfect, so the technology can't be perfect. It's just that's the reality we're in. And and users do give some leeway. And still, I would say, appreciate a lot of what Apple's done. But what I, you know, the overall takeaway is, okay, that's great. You're coming up with new features. We love it. But please continue to maintain the features that are already there. Please continue to integrate functionality you know with various accessibility features not just on their own but together as well yeah and i think as well we you know this could have been a a time when we all got together to and just bashed apple or something and that that didn't happen that we got really well considered responses and i think it's fantastic and people praised where they where they deserve praise and we're willing to give constructive criticism where it's where it's due as well it's a really interesting read and it is both deep in the weeds when people have bugs that were really important to them to talk about. And it is also big picture thinking and, you know, right in the same, same uh, comment in some cases. And I think it's well worth your time. It took, uh, I put it into voice stream reader. It took like 50 minutes, I think, but uh, <laughs> worth your time. Or you can listen to this hour long podcast instead. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> and bef- before we wrap up, Real quick, I just wanted to take a moment to express appreciation for the users doing this. Taking the time and providing this feedback is what makes this report card what it is, and it makes AppleViz what it is. So uh, a big thank you to our users who have all filled it out, who I'm sure are listening to this podcast, uh, because without them, we wouldn't have a report card to talk about. So thank you. And thank you for bringing us on, Shelley. I loved having you guys, and I, AppleViz is such an important resource in the community, and I do my best to uh, let folks outside the community kind of know that because it's it's I think it's hard for people outside the community to fill, figure out, even if they have an interest in accessibility, like what they should follow or, or where the sort of zeitgeist is. And you guys do as good a job as anyone at getting that for the blind and low vision community of Apple users. So thanks for what you do and thanks for the survey. And thank thank you, you, Scott Devert and Dave Nason for coming on Parallel. It was great to talk to you. I'm going to have a link to your Apple report card on the uh, in the show notes and watch Apple Viz. I hope you guys do this again. Uh, I really look forward to it. And maybe I'll roll up my sleeves and, you know, write some stuff and comment the next time. Please, please do, Shelley. You know, the, the low vision aspect of this was, I think, the lowest amount of responses we got. And I always strongly encourage everyone to not only not only report to Apple, but, you know, make your voice known. 
You know, if people don't know about issues, I, for example, I learned a heck of a lot from Shelly today about low vision because I'm not a low vision user. And we need more people advocating for low vision access, I would say, overall. So Definitely. please do contribute, Shelly. And uh, I'm I'm pretty sure we'll probably do a similar uh, project next year. Excellent. Glad to hear it. If you want to keep up with this podcast, go to relay.fm slash parallel. You can subscribe. You can also submit feedback at our brand new feedback form, which is linked on the site. You can follow us on Twitter. Yes, we're still on Twitter at Parallel Pods, or you can follow us on Mastodon. We are at Parallel Pods at relayfm.social. And all of those are also linked on the website, so you can keep up with us that way. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye now.